You can cut this out, please. But every time you say Mordo, I think Mordor. Like, I want to say Mordor, and that's wrong. You shall not pass. I don't even know what Mordor is. It's where the bad guys live. It's where Sauron lives? It's where Sauron. Very good. Sauron lives in Mordor? Sauron lives in Mordor. You okay. got that's that's hey. right. You have to you have to thank your dad for that one, right? <laughs> and Sauron is the eye. So yeah, Sauron is a big well, eye. He's like not an eye, and... but like that's how he. He's an eye. That's how that's, that's how you how perceive you... him. That's how you perceive him. That is how he manifests. Yes. Okay. I got it. Very good. I did not know until just today that Mordor is where Sauron is. <laughs> We can do this all day. Episode 21, Doctor Strange Review. Are you ready, partner? Rock and roll, buckaroo. Hi, this is Mark. And this is Emily. And And we we can can do do this this all day. day. A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions, things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Mark Villa. With me, as always, is Emily Griswold. Hi, Emily. Hello. There is a multi-legged creature we think running around the uh, running around her studio. We think she she thinks she has dispatched it, but. If you hear screams of horror in the middle of this uh, show, you'll know it got her. I'm just telling y'all. <laughs> we are recording this on uh, Saturday, March the 12th, 2022. Of course, by the time I'm editing it, so by the time you hear it, it'll be well into spring. So happy spring, everybody. Uh, we had a we had a little snowstorm here in the D.C. metro area, so it was kind of winter's last gasp. But I am very excited. And feeling very warm and cozy because we are reviewing one of my favorite, 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 favorite movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Doctor Strange, starring Benedict Cumberbatch. I've been waiting for this one for a long time, and it is finally here. But before we get started with the review, we have a little bit of MCU news to share with you. Breaking news from earlier this week, the She-Hulk series on Disney Plus has apparently been delayed, no reason given why. It sounds like we'll be seeing it sometime in the latter half of the year, which is unfortunate, but the silver lining is that as a result of this move, rumor has it that we will see Ms. Marvel much earlier than anticipated, perhaps sometime as early as this spring. We are also rumored to be getting the Secret Invasion series sometime later this year, starring Samuel L. Jackson, Ben Mendelsohn, and Kobe Smulders. And of course, by the time this episode drops, we will be well into Moon Knight, starring Emily's other ya-boy, Oscar Isaac, as Mark Spector. And that will have dropped on Disney Plus on the last day of March, so we may have a few things to say about that when it drops. Um, A note on another... Yeah, boy. Is that I saw Uncharted yesterday for the plot? You know, I like, of course. I, I was gonna, I was gonna bring that up. I was actually gonna bring up. We, Emily, and e, Emily and I each saw, uh, each saw a movie uh, within the last 24, 48 hours. So you saw what's it called again? Uncharted. Yeah, Uncharted. I, I guess it's from a video game. I don't really know. With Tom Holland. Right. Yes. Correct. One of one of her other yeah boys. The plot, for sure. Did you enjoy it? Yeah. It was good. I thought it was fine. 
You enjoyed you enjoyed the plot. Of I course. enjoyed the plot. Yes. And nothing else. <laughs> Actually, no. There was um, what's the character's name? Chloe Fraser. I thought the actor who played Chloe Fraser was really good. Also, a very good plot. <laughs> because we all know, we all know that it's the only. We know that Emily goes to see these purely for the you know dramatic quality and story writing. Yeah, most definitely. That's the only thing I look for in a movie, for sure. She doesn't care who's in it or what they look like or how incredibly cute they are. Well, I saw uh, this morning, I watched um, The Atom Project on Netflix starring Ryan Reynolds, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. It's a fun, fun movie. It's it's Ryan Reynolds kind of doing what he does best, you know, just kind of, you know, quirky, smart-alecky comebacks. But there's a lot of action. There's time travel. Uh, there's a lot of Marvel connections in that movie because, you know, he's in it. And, you know, Deadpool, as we all know, is now officially a part of the MCU, even though we haven't seen him yet. You've got Zoe Saldana in it. You've got Mark Ruffalo in it. Here's sort of a deep cut, even though this predates the MCU. It even has Jennifer Garner, who played Elektra in the horrible uh, Ben Affleck Daredevil film from 2003. And she was in the sequel sort of spinoff movie, Elektra, a couple years later, which was equally terrible. The Atom Project was really cool. A lot of cool fights, a lot of cool effects, a very cool story, very, very funny. And uh, it was actually quite touching, too. It's probably the best thing I've ever seen Ryan Reynolds in, to be perfectly honest. I liked it better than the Deadpool movies. So, anyway, quick little movie tips from us today. Let's get into the meat of our show. Doctor Strange, which opened in the U.S. on November 4th, 2016, which just happened to be my and my wife's 10th wedding anniversary. Yes, how terribly romantic. That's how we celebrated it, by going to the movies to see this. It was her idea. <laughs> Had nothing to do with me. It stars Benedict Cumberbatch, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Rachel McAdams, Benedict Wong, Mads Mikkelsen, Tilda Swinton, and Benjamin Bratt. The film is directed by Scott Derrickson, written by John Spates, Scott Derrickson, and C. Robert Cargill. Scott Derrickson had been mainly known for horror films such as The Exorcism of Emily Rose, Sinister, and Deliver Us from Evil, although he also directed the remake of the science fiction classic The Day the Earth Stood Still, starring Keanu Reeves. He was hired in 2014, apparently up against quite a bit of competition, after making a 90-minute presentation to Marvel that included a 12-page scene based upon the now-classic Doctor Strange miniseries The Oath, which is a really good book. I highly recommend it. Derrickson illustrated the sequence with his own concept art, storyboards from professional artists, and an animatic, all of which he paid for out of his own pocket for what he deemed an, quote, obnoxious amount of money. But he wanted to show Marvel very badly that he was the one for the job, and he obviously succeeded. At the box office, the budget of the film has been estimated to be somewhere between, that's a very large estimate, $165 million and $236.6 million. It was a rather expensive film to make. Fortunately, it did see a profit, raking in $677.7 million at the box office. It ranks number 16 of 25 in terms of the MCU films at the box office, just ahead of Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings and just barely behind Captain America the Winter Soldier. Uh, if you've been listening to our show for any length of time now, you probably already know that this is my second favorite, second favorite movie in the MCU. 
I'm not normally a fantasy fan or a fan of stuff involving magic and wizards and things, but I am just utterly fascinated by the way magic and sorcery are laid out in the MCU by way of this film. I love the world building that occurs in it. I like the way that the magic has structure and it's got rules. Uh, I like the action, the fight sequences, uh, the jaw-dropping visual effects. And I think Benedict Cumberbatch delivers a fantastic performance as Stephen Strange with a redemption story arc that I find, at least I find it, infinitely more compelling than that of you know the MCU's other hard-to-love hero genius with facial hair, Tony Stark. Now, that's not to say the film is without its flaws. You know, we'll talk about um, we'll talk about how it serves as yet another example of Marvel's villain problem. And yes, we will address the um, the whitewashing of the character of the Ancient One and the problems surrounding the casting of Tilda Swinton in that role. So, I think I mentioned this before. I had watched most of this movie years ago, probably around the time that it came out. Or like when it came out on DVD or whenever. But I never finished it. And one thing I will say about watching it this time is that I really appreciated that it never seemed to drag. Like, maybe it got a little bit slow when he's looking for Kamartage, but that's kind of about it. I never felt like I was looking at my watch or just begging to move on to a different scene. And I'm not sure if that's because the movie is shorter than a lot of the other MCU movies that we've been talking about recently. Or, like, I mean, even think of Infinity War or Endgame. Like, this is a TV show compared to that. But I definitely enjoyed it more than some MCU movies purely because of that pacing aspect. I do think it goes a little too wide with where the MCU was at at this particular time. Like, the baddie being this whole beyond space and time thing before we've even really established the multiverse in a deeper way. But I like how it looks, and it's a good vibe. You know, it was enough to keep me interested. I wasn't bored at any point. Congratulations for finally finishing the movie. Yeah. I don't know why I didn't finish it the first time. I probably was bored at the time, but I was also in grad school, working, and generally doing a lot more stuff than wanting to pay attention to a movie. When we first uh, presented our rankings back in 2020, I had Doctor Strange at number two, and I still do. Next to Winter Soldier, it is still my, next to Winter Soldier, it is still my all-time favorite MCU movie. I currently have it at 11. I think there is going to be a lot of restructuring coming up. Just because I looked at the movies that are coming up and looked at all of my placements of things. And I think stuff's going to have to move around. But right now it's at 11. So Thor is at 10 and Captain Marvel's at 12. Let's dig into the movie. A group of figures enters a library and their leader, Caecilius, beheads the librarian before forcibly removing several pages of text from an ancient book. Oh, hey, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I, given the uh, profession that I just uh, started engaging in a couple weeks ago, the thought of the librarian losing his head is a little disconcerting, but it's only a movie, I keep telling myself. It's only a movie. He is then confronted by a female hooded figure who tells him that that ritual will bring you only sorrow. Caecilius and his zealots escape the library by means of some sort of portal, which takes them to the streets of London. But they are followed by the hooded figure, who casts some sort of spell around the entire lot of them, trapping them within some sort of crystalline force field. Hypocrite, Caecilius yells at her. 
Then she begins to manipulate their surroundings within that field, making the ground and the buildings turn on their sides and making the buildings change shape to stall the zealots, who then try to restrain her with some sort of energy bands concocted with their hands. But she systematically overpowers each one of them after conjuring circular energy shields in her hands. Caecilius opens another portal through which he and the surviving zealots escape. Okay, so we're not even four minutes into the movie, and we've already got our first major effects scene with the buildings changing and bending, you know, a la Christopher Nolan's Inception, as well as our first really cool sorcerer fight with the shields and the bands. Just a little foretaste of everything that I love, love, love about this movie. I do really like the reality bending stuff, only because it makes me think of particle physics, and while I am... I guess like particle physics and quantum physics, I guess. And while I am not a scientist or a philosopher or any of that, what little I do know about particle and quantum physics and about what they think about reality is super interesting. Yeah, I I had no idea that you knew anything about particle physics. Well, yeah, like I said, very little. Like pretty much all that I know is that what we see and interpret as reality isn't actually what reality is. Because when you observe something in space and or time, I guess it reacts differently than when it's not being observed. So reality isn't always what you think it is. And then of course, you know, like time isn't a straight line. Wow. I didn't realize you were, I didn't realize you were such a theoretical physicist. Well, no, I, I said very little. Yeah. You know more than I do. I, 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 I had to sort of, I had to parse what you said for, for a few seconds. Like, well, wow. it's the same as like, My, mine. If blown. you talk about it from a philosophical perspective, which shows you what I think about that. They'll be like, is a chair really a chair if you're not using it as a chair? And it's like, well, yeah, it's a chair. But if you look at it from the quantum physics aspect, the particles and the atoms in that chair behave differently when you're looking at it versus when you're not. It's like if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to see it fall. But like with philosophy, they're just asking that question and then the answer is not concrete. But with quantum physics or particle physics, my understanding is that you could eventually come to a concrete conclusion and maybe create a mirror verse and bend all the buildings around because reality is all about perception and it all has something to do with your mother right okay no that was freud sorry no see i I took psychology i I took philosophy too but I, i didn't i like psychology better marginally so we cut to a hospital in new york city Celebrated neurosurgeon Dr. Stephen Strange is finishing up a case in the operating room when his colleague and on-again, off-again girlfriend, Dr. Christine Palmer, calls him in to help remove a bullet lodged dangerously near the base of a patient's brainstem, which, of course, he does freehand without the help of any imaging guidance. Christine, who is in charge of the ER at the hospital, encourages Stephen to be her neurosurgeon on call. He flatly rebukes her boasting how the cutting-edge work he's doing will save thousands of lives for years to come, whereas working in the ER will allow him to save, quote, one drunk idiot with a gun. First of all, my father had that very uh, Chuck Mangione album that they're playing in the OR, and I used to make him play the title track, Feel So Good, which they, which they play in the movie, for me over and over and over again, because I rather liked that song when I was five years old, and frankly, I still do. We establish fairly efficiently in this scene that Strange is a highly skilled and brilliant surgeon, and that he's also a pretty arrogant ass about it, too. 
think Tony Stark, but less flamboyant and not nearly as funny. And I don't mean to imply that that makes him a bad character. In fact, I've always liked, I've always liked that he's a much more sardonic type of person than Tony. We talked about, you know, we talked about this on our top five MCU characters episode last year about how a lot of folks knock Doctor Strange because they think he's just some sort of cheap Tony Stark knockoff. Uh, I'm sure we'll be going, we'll be doing a deeper dive into this as the show goes on. But for now, let's just say that I think he's a lot more nuanced and complex than that. And while Tony is sort of a likable jerk, I kind of like the fact that Strange separates himself from Tony by being much more of an unlikable jerk. I think Doctor Strange's jerkiness is actually a bit more reasonable, if that makes sense. Like, Tony is a jerk because he's rich. Yeah, he's smart and very obviously capable, but he's also got the benefit of money and a family name behind him. And it's my understanding, anyway, that Doctor Strange got to where he is, I presume, of his own accord. Like, when you're the best in your field because of your own hard work, I wouldn't be surprised if you were at least somewhat of a jerk. Like, he surely earned it. You know, that being said, he could grow up a little bit. But we don't know that he didn't come from money. I don't think they addressed that all in the film. and I'm not even sure. I don't even know very much about his background in the comics. But we can assume that he didn't grow up like Tony Stark rich. You know, otherwise he'd be on the board of some pharma company and he wouldn't be putting in hours and hours at the hospital. Mm, okay, that's probably fair. That night, Strange gets all dressed up and hops into his Lamborghini Huracan and starts driving up to a neurological society dinner where he's giving a talk. Surprised you don't have anything to say about the music playing in this scene. Although I like it, so maybe that's why. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, I was reading through these notes. I was like, honestly, I liked it until you until you said that you liked it, and now I feel like I'm contra- contractually obligated to. Yeah, not that's like it. that's the whole thing. If I like something, you have to hate it. It sounds except like for Winter Soldier. That's like the one thing we can both agree the, on. This is true. This is true. Well, the the music is the music was Pink Floyd. As one of their older, you know, one of their early, like, you know, from the late 60s. I, I, when I first heard it, I thought it was like The Who. It sounds a lot like The Who. But I was close, you know. It sounded like, you know, late 60s, late 60s Who, which, you know, okay, it was actually late 60s Pink Floyd. But, you know, close enough. En route, he has a phone conversation with one of his assistants, who's helping him select his next big surgical challenge. I'm pretty sure they're talking about Rhodey in one of those. Yeah, they say, you know, Air Force pilot, you know, spinal cord, whatever, in a experimental suit. I, I think, And I think the prevailing, the prevailing theory Who is that, Who else would yeah. it be? Is there another theory? The only other theory that there was, and this is pretty tenuous, I, think it, I really don't think it matches the timeline at all, even though the timeline of Doctor Strange is a little, is kind of a question mark. There's one person who said, remember there's a, in, there's a scene in, in Iron Man 2 where they're showing footage of one of the failed... Like, you know, uh, hammer, hammer bots, and like one of the, the, the pilot gets killed in it. And oh, there's, yeah. there, there's someone, there, there are a couple, there's some people out there who think that that was what it was, but I don't, I think that's way too early. But this would be a good, yeah, a good time frame. Yeah, I think this, this, this lines up, you know, much better. You know, the thing that really destroys the, the Iron Man 2 theory is there's a lot of shots where you can see Avengers Tower in the background, and, you know, with, very clearly with the A, and there was no such thing back in Iron Man 2. There were no Avengers yet in Iron Man 2. So that shoots that down. While driving on a dangerously narrow and windy, dangerously high off the ground piece of road at dangerously high speeds, 
Strange gets distracted talking to his assistant and runs the car off the road, down the side of a cliff, and plunges it headfirst into a body of water. His hands, his lifeblood, and the tools of his trade and his success are severely mangled in the crash. Despite experimental and expensive treatments and surgeries, Strange's hands remain severely injured. He will likely never perform surgery again. He attempts to cajole colleagues around the world to perform even riskier experimental procedures on him, but they are unwilling to make the attempt. When Christine confronts him and tells him that maybe it's time for him to stop trying, he pushes her away, distraught over his inability to continue his life's work, without which he feels he has no life. I love this montage culminating in the confrontation with Christine in the apartment. Unlike Tony Stark, you not only see Stephen Strange knocked off of his perch, but you see him brought down to his absolute lowest, most desperate point. When he starts talking back to Christine, who's trying to help him, I mean, he's just awful to her. It's awful. He's, he's bitter and he's angry. And he's probably being compelled to lash out because he doesn't know what else to do. This is you know easily Stephen Strange at his least likable. And that's important because in order to build him back up, he has to be broken down first. And he's pretty broken at this point in time. Also, do you think he's bothered more by the fact that he can't do the work anymore? Or by the fact that the fame, adoration, and accolades may stop rolling in as a result of the accident? Or maybe even both? I mean, when all you've known is taken away, it's kind of one and the same. You know, like with Tony, he could live off stark money and fame for the rest of his life, with or without making weapons. But with Strange, if he can't operate, he can't do anything. Like, that's kind of why I think that he didn't come from, like, Tony Stark-level mm -hmm. money. Because, like, his hands made him who he is. Tony Stark is who he is because he's Tony Stark. Mm -hmm. not because he did anything like obviously later that changes but in his like development story yeah and then and there's that I, and i'm just now remembering that comment that christine makes you know steven you've always you've always spent money as as you know as fast as you make it and now you're spending money you don't even have because he's trying to like scrounge up money for a loan to pay for some you know, weird you know stem cell kind of thing in japan or whatnot mm -hmm. so yeah that makes that makes sense yeah that makes sense while doing rehab at the hospital, Strange learns of a man named Jonathan Pangborn, who was paralyzed from the mid-chest down in a factory accident, and yet is now apparently walking. Strange locates Pangborn and talks to him. He says that while he had given up on his body, he felt compelled to improve his mind. So he made his way to Kathmandu in Nepal and to a secret place called Kamartaj. There, in the process of healing his soul, spirit, and mind, his body miraculously healed. Why is it always mysterious and secret places in the mountains that hold the keys to fixing all the problems a person could have? Like, you'd think they'd want to make this stuff public knowledge. You know, obviously here they're hiding something deeper than fixing a busted body. But in the real world, when we don't have magic and infinity stones, it makes you wonder what they could be hiding. Maybe we do have magic and infinity stones. <laughs> Maybe we do, but we need like we need like some big neon sign that says, you know... Magic fixes, cures all, come here. Well, we already kind of do that with, you know, like diets and, you know, this, this one exercise will 
heal your gut or whatever. Help you help you lose fifty pounds in tri- in three days. Yeah. But although I guess you know maybe I would have to walk that back a little bit because they do have when uh, Strange goes to Kathmandu, there's all those signs everywhere mm-hmm. that specifically say you know like find the answer to everything you're looking for. But it always seems like whenever you read a book, like a self-help book, they talk about like, you know, deep in the caves of this mountain range in the yeah. somewhere else, they have this thing they've been doing for thousands of years. And it's like, well, don't you think we'd know that? <laughs> like, why would we let go of that if it works? Yeah, it's never in like, you know, the, you know, 50 story high rise in the middle of downtown Manhattan with a big neon sign over it. So Strange makes his way to Kathmandu and begins looking for Kamartaj. He's attacked by muggers in an alley there, but rescued by Carl Mordo, who takes Strange to Kamartaj. He is greeted there by the Ancient One, the woman who confronted Kaecilius in the beginning of the film. She confirms that she did assist in healing Jonathan Pangborn, and that her treatment consisted of reorienting the spirit to better heal the body. When Strange denies the existence of spirit and the ability to heal through belief, the Ancient One momentarily pushes Strange's astral form out of his body. She then sends him on a short tour of the multiverse, of different dimensions of time and space, some benign, some dark and terrifying. She then kicks him out of Carmartage, but after several hours of him trying to back in, banging on the door, Mordo convinces the Ancient One to let him back in. If Caecilius manages to translate the pages he stole from that book at the beginning of the film, dark days could be ahead, and Mordo believes that they could use someone with Strange's strength. That effect sequence was nothing short of incredible. You know, we, we kind of got a hint of it, a hint of the multiverse in Ant-Man during the, you know, the shrink down to the quantum realm. And here we get a lot more of it. I mean, really, nothing had, like it had been seen in the MCU up to that point. I like when she punches him out of his body, <laughs> like a proper out-of-body experience. And clearly he found it useful because he does it to at least one other person later on himself. I think he does it to Peter, right? Uh, you in, in, in No Way Home? Yeah, in the new one. Yeah, I, I believe so, but for some reason I've already forgotten. But I think, I think he, does. he does it to Peter. Also, Mordo giving him the Wi-Fi password on that old paper and that fancy script is like such a good gag. Shambhala. What is this? Is this my mantra? It's the Wi-Fi password. What did he say? We all civilized or something like that. Yeah, all, something I, like that. Something like that. You think I'd remember the you think I'd remember the exact line by now. We're not uncivilized. And so Strange begins his training in the mystic arts under the tutelage of the Ancient One. And to quote the Ancient One, the language of the mystic arts is as old as civilization. The sorcerers of antiquity called the use of this language spells, but if that word offends your modern sensibilities, you can call it a program, the source code that shapes reality. We harness energy, drawn from other dimensions of the multiverse, to cast spells, to conjure shields and weapons, to make magic. Strange asks her how he's supposed to get from here to there, especially given the condition of his hands. She responds, same way he knows how to do complex surgery, years of training and practice. I wanted to use the entire quote because I don't think I can paraphrase the Ancient One's description of magic in the MCU any better. It's a short scene, but I like it 
because for the first time we get strange actually exhibiting a sense of wonder as the ancient one gives him a small demonstration of spell projection. Um, I mean, we, we see him just looking wide eyed as she's, you know, making this big shield in the air and he seems genuinely intrigued, you know, almost childlike for the first time. And it lends just a small sense of likability to him for the first time. It kind of humanizes him. He's reacting the way that most of us would probably react in that situation. Although, although I suppose you could argue that, you know, him freaking out during his tour of the multiverse is how most of us would react too. But it's kind of like for the first time we were, we're breaking through that skepticism of his and he's starting to accept like, wow, this stuff is real and maybe I can do this. Strange, who is apparently a fast reader and a fast learner, has been going through texts from the library at an incredible rate. While returning some books and borrowing others from Wong, the new librarian, he notices the books kept separately in the Ancient One's private collection, including the Book of Cagliostro, from which Caecilius stole the pages earlier. Meanwhile, Caecilius and his zealots begin using the rites described in the stolen pages of the Book of Cagliostro to begin summoning Dormammu from the Dark Dimension. Love a villain from the Dark Dimension. <laughs> <laughs> also, thank you for the books and the horrifying story and the threat upon my life. It's a very well-delivered and very Stephen Strange line. You know, it's 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 funny because he, he I love how Cumberbatch delivers. He delivers a lot of those lines under his breath, and sometimes you miss them. Uh, there's some of the, there's some lines in that movie that I it, it took me a few viewings to catch, but it's it's a very yeah, it's just sort of a very subtle wry kind of thing that he he likes to mutter under his breath a lot, and I don't I just always find that kind of funny. I think that might just be a Cumberbatch thing, because he does that in a couple other roles that aren't strange. I think that might just be like a style of delivery that works for him. Mm -hmm. Well, it, you know, he he's been doing it for he's been doing it for uh, you know a handful of MCU films now, so I guess if it works, stick with it. Back in Cumbertage, Strange continues to have difficulty conjuring spells and creating portals with a sling ring. He believes his failure to do so is because of his injured hands, but the Ancient One is sure that that's not the case. You cannot beat a river into submission, she says, so sometimes you have to surrender to the current. She portals them both to just below the summit of Mount Everest, where someone can die within a matter of minutes without proper clothing and equipment, and then leaves him there with only his sling ring and some advice. Surrender. After several minutes and several failed attempts, Strange manages to create a portal, just barely, stable enough for him to return to Camartage before he freezes to death. Well, if you ever want to teach a baby bird to fly, you gotta kick it out of the nest. You know how we were talking earlier about those places where they can mysteriously cure every problem ever? One of those stories that I've heard is these monks out in, you know... What's the mountain range? In the Himalayas? Yeah. Um, that these and all that. Buddhist, Buddhist monks or whatever out in the Himalayas that can sit in the snow naked for hours and just by breathing stay warm. And stay warm enough that they actually melt the snow around them. I'm wondering, like, do you guys have some version of the sling ring that you're hiding <laughs> in that mountain range? What are you doing? <laughs> well, it's either, the, either A, they have a sling ring, which I would like to believe... Or, you know, there have been all sorts of, you know, all sorts of studies about, you know, the mind-body connection and 
um, like, heck, you know, you know, Emily is very, you know, well aware of sort of the, some, the chronicle of my on again, off again, shoulder, shoulder pain ever since my bicycle accident back in October. And I, I'm convinced that a big part of that is probably, you know, the, why, why does it only hurt? Why does it mainly hurt when I'm under stress? <laughs> you know, there's sort of a, you know, there's definitely a connection there. If I'm feeling really, really relaxed, it doesn't hurt. And so I, I'm sure the mind has a lot to do with this. Well, you know, well, and if we like, want to take it back even further earlier on in this episode, reality is all about your perception. That's true. That's true. And, you know. So if you perceive that you're going to freeze to death, you're going to freeze to death. But if you perceive that you won't, just might not. <laughs> and, yeah, and Jonathan Pangborn said he was able to, you know, you know, it, it, Pangborn sort of intimates that and even and the ancient one intimates that that's kind of part of how he healed himself a lot of it just had to do with with his mind strange continues to progress in his training at an astounding rate when wong refuses to let him borrow books on astral projection because he doesn't think he's ready strange uses mini portals to covertly borrow them he's then able to teach himself astral projection so that his astral form can continue to study while his body sleeps Recognizing Strange's astounding progress, the Ancient One teaches him how to access the Mirror Dimension, an undetectable pocket dimension in which anything that happens does not affect normal reality. It is an ideal place for Strange to train and safely practice his spells. It's like when you break the dev site at work but not the live site when you're editing code. <laughs> that's, that's very true. It's been a while since I've since I've done any sort of website management, but yeah, you need the little you know little off the grid. Uh, practice area where you can screw something up and, and not break anything. I'm a pro at breaking the dev site at work. Hey, that's what it's there for. That's what it's there for. Hopefully, hopefully the tech guys at work are listening to this podcast. Actually, I was lying. I have never broken the dev site before in my life. <laughs> I've never had caused any problems for any of you. <laughs> they're listening to this and they're frantically type logging in, trying to go onto the dev site. Oh, what did she break? What did she break? No, they know. I've broken a couple things and had to go to them with my tail between my legs. <laughs> you being the help desk, too. <laughs> Which I think is very funny. The help desk needs help sometimes. During a sparring match with Mordo, Strange learns that little is known of the Ancient One, including her age. But he does learn that Caecilius was a student of the Ancient One, having come to Camartage, quote, a broken man, looking for answers in the mystic arts. He was brilliant, but proud and headstrong, frequently questioning the Ancient One and ultimately rejecting her teachings, and left Camartage with a group of followers, the Zealots. During the sparring match, we also learn that some magic is too powerful to be handled, so the mystics imbue objects with it, relics, to absorb some of the strain. The Staff of the Living Tribunal, Mordo's Vaulting Boots of Valtor, to name just a couple. You get a relic when the relic decides you're ready for it. Later that night, Strange starts composing an email to Christine, but can't quite bring himself to finish it. Notice the looks that both Strange and the Ancient One give Mordo after he knocks Strange down rather aggressively during that sparring match. I think they both recognize that Mordo is, you know, he's kind of taking it up to a 10 or 11, you know, when he probably only needs a 7 or an 8. You get the you get the feeling that he's a little, you know, a little off, a little intense. In the middle of the night, Strange sneaks into the library, pulls out the book of Cagliostro, and begins studying it. 
he sees an illustration of the Eye of Agamotto, a relic that sits in the library. He calls for Wong, but gets no answer. So he retrieves the eye himself, hangs it around his neck, and begins following the directions, as it were, in the book. He manages to open the eye, revealing a bright glowing green stone. Moments later, he is manipulating time itself, making the apple he was eating become further eaten and decompose, then reversing the process and restoring the apple to its uneaten state. He then uses the stone to restore the pages stolen from the book from Caecilius. He sees references to Dormammu, the Dark Dimension, and Eternal Life. He is halted suddenly by Mordo and Wong, who have put the Mirror Dimension around him and begin tearing into him for attempting such a dangerous ritual. Mordo warns him he could have created time loops, spatial paradoxes, dimensional rifts, or even prevented himself from ever having existed. Mordo then questions how Strange was even able to learn the spells necessary to conduct the ritual in the first place. Strange tells him it was just his photographic memory, but Mordo and Wong suspect that perhaps he was simply born with this ability. I've talked at length before about how much I love the way they depict the use of magic in the MCU, and it starts with the spells. It seems like a really simple thing, but there's just something about those ornate, glowing, floating circles that I just think is really neat looking. I'm sure that on some philosophical, metaphysical level, the use of a circle is significant also. That sense of something that cycles or is cyclical or, you know, dare I say, infinite. This almost feels more like Peter Parker in this scene than Tony Stark, to me anyway. Like how surprised he is when something works. And he's clearly got the aptitude for it the same way that Peter does with sort of technical scientific things. Although, well, you know, Tony gets like that too sometimes when he figures something out. So maybe they're just all the same type of person, except Peter is less of a jerk. Strange then asks them to tell him what exactly the sorcerers of Kamartage are supposed to do. Wong explains that they are there to protect the world from mystical threats, as opposed to physical threats, which fall under the Avengers' jurisdiction. The Ancient One is the latest in a long line of Sorcerers Supreme, going back thousands of years to the first Sorcerer Supreme, Agamotto himself. Agamotto constructed three sanctums, which now reside in the present-day cities of Hong Kong, London, and New York. Together, the sanctums generate a mystical protective shield around the Earth. The sanctums protect the world, and the sorcerers protect the sanctums. Dormammu is the destroyer of worlds who resides in the dark dimension, beyond time. His goal is to invade and consume every universe. The pages Caecilius stole contain a ritual for contacting Dormammu and drawing power from the dark dimension. This knowledge concerns Strange considerably. He came to Kamartage to heal his hands, not fight a mystical war. I know, I know, I'm getting way ahead of myself here, so we can just uh, yell spoilers really loud so people can skip ahead, but Dormammu is in a space beyond time, so too is the TVA. Is Dormammu from the TVA? Although I guess, is Dormammu just another name for that dude Loki and Sylvie met in the last episode of Loki? I think both are from beyond space and time, frankly, both Dormammu and the TVA but kind of like in different ways. Uh, the guy Loki and Sylvie meet is a version of Kang the Conqueror, who will be seen again uh, in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Why are we allowed to have two different things beyond space and time? 
because beyond space and time is a big place, Emily. I just don't it's, understand. It's, it's you know, space and time are big. So beyond space and time is going to be like really, really, really big. I don't understand. We're getting into a lot of convoluted multiverse dimension I, nonsense. I know. I know. It's, that's, what's, that's what's so awesome about this movie. It's just, just makes your head like it's like all those explode. paradoxes in Endgame when they're talking about like all the time travel paradoxes and how it can't possibly happen. And it's like, well, I mean, also the problem is that time is not linear. We just experience it linear- linearly. I just like when they're talking about all the time travel movies. Star Trek, hot, Back to the hot, Future. Hot, hot, hot Tub Time Machine. Hot Tub Time Machine. <laughs> Die Hard. <laughs> no, that's not a time travel movie. All right, but spoilers aside... If you skipped to exactly this point, which we're not going to tell you what the point is, obviously. So good luck. Um, I think one thing that, at least at this point in the movie, makes Strange different from Tony is that Strange doesn't want to be involved in all of this. Like, Tony loves the idea of being a superhero and totally doesn't mind that he went from weapons dealer to Iron Man because that still keeps Tony as the center of attention. But at least right now, Strange isn't trying to change his life he's trying to get it back of course we know that that changes of course at some point he feels like he owes it to them to do his job but even with tony i don't think he was ever being a superhero to help people you know at least not until way later in the universe he was doing it because he wanted to be cool you kind of see to some extent you see strange's ego kind of you know dissipating i think rather quickly as this movie goes on and as we see him progress through the mcu Tony, Tony, on the other hand, just kind of more or less remains Tony for, you know, the duration of his time in the MCU. That's how, at least that's how I see it. Suddenly, an alarm from the London Sanctum rings out. As the door between it and Camartage opens, we see the London Sanctum's defender killed by Caecilius, who then sends an explosive blast through the entryway, knocking Strange back and through a doorway leading to the New York Sanctum. He wanders the halls of the seemingly empty Sanctum. He circles back to the main hallway and discovers the New York Sanctum's defender squaring off against Caecilius and the Zealots, but he is dispatched rather quickly. Using the magic drawn from the Dark Dimension to allow them to walk on walls and manipulate the physical surroundings, Caecilius and the Zealots pursue Strange through the New York Sanctum. Using what combat training and spells he has, more or less mastered, He has trouble generating hand shields, but uses the, according to the comics, the Crimson Bands of Sederach fairly effectively. Strange incapacitates most of the Zealots, or strands them in faraway places using the Sanctum's spatial passageways. But Caecilius continues to manipulate the building around them, knocking Strange to and fro all over the place. During the fight, Strange is sent crashing through a number of glass cases displaying numerous relics, including a floating and seemingly self-aware cloak, the Cloak of Levitation. The cloak helps protect Strange from Caecilius' attacks, and together, it and Strange are able to subdue Caecilius. During our discussion a year or so ago about our favorite MCU moments, I listed this whole sequence in the Sanctum as one of my favorites. The whole fight is choreographed just so brilliantly. Uh, There's something about the way Derrickson puts together the chase through the halls of the Sanctum, the hand-to-hand combat, the cool Inception-like effects with Caecilius manipulating the building around them, and 
the consistent way in which the sorcerers in the MCU use magic. And I'm mainly talking about the hand motions, the so-called tutting that Strange uses to conjure the bands of Sidorak and the hand shields and so forth. That whole scene is assembled, I think, so skillfully and logically, but not in a manner that's so technical that it feels antiseptic, because it's a very exciting sequence. Strange is, he's in the fight of his life here, and he's way overmatched, and you can feel that peril, that danger throughout the scene. I mean, despite how well he does acquit himself, he'd be a dead man if not for the cloak's timely intervention. Kaecilius tells Strange that he is trying to save the Earth by calling on Dormammu. Dormammu is from a place beyond time, and as such, without time, there is no death. He believes Dormammu will bring them immortality. Furthermore, he suggests that it is the Ancient One who has hoodwinked all of the broken people who come to Kamartaj. They get the dregs while she wields the true power, drawn from the Dark Dimension. Have you ever wondered how she managed to live this long? Caecilius asks him. Strange notes that he did read the various rituals in the Book of Cagliostro. Caecilius is making a lot of bold assumptions here. Such as... I mean, I just don't think he has all of the information to be making the assumptions that he's making. That like About, about the ancient yeah. one? I mean, at this mm. point. Like, he also, we'll talk about it later, only has a few pages of that book hmm. instead of the whole picture. So again, you know, like as we've been talking about, I think his perception is that is he's not getting the full picture. He's only seeing what he has perceived. Suddenly, Strange is stabbed from behind with a mystical weapon wielded by one of the stranded zealots who has apparently managed to return via portal. The wounded Strange, having lost his sling ring, tries to flee. Once again, it is only due to the intervention of the cloak, which subdues the zealot, that Strange can pick up a discarded sling ring and create a portal leading to the hospital where Christine works. Can we give a quick shout-out to the Cloak of Levitation, who's become kind of an unsung hero in the MCU? It has saved Strange's ass numerous times, both in this film and in Infinity War. Strange manages to locate Christine, who gets him into an operating theater before he loses consciousness. As he does, he is able to put forth his astral projection and assist a very surprised Christine in inserting the very long needle into his heart so she can inject it with epinephrine and save his life. Strange has so much explaining to do. <laughs> Christine! I mean, you can't just roll up after being gone for months in that outfit. And also bleeding. Bleeding to death. <laughs> like, but that's like the, le I feel like the first thing she saw was the outfit and she's like, huh? <laughs> it's like, apparently he never sent that email. Even though he says like, oh, I wrote you a lot of emails. It's like, oh, well, you never sent them. Unfortunately, the zealot being beaten up by the cloak has also astrally projected himself and has found his way through Strange's portal to the hospital. The two astral projections begin duking it out in the OR like two ghosts, unbeknownst to everyone there in the material plane, aside from the occasional shaking of walls or objects, like the vending machine that Nick is trying to get a snack out of. The zealot knocks out Strange's astral body so his physical body flatlines. Christine hits him with a defibrillator. Doing so not only wakes up Strange's astral form, but zaps the zealot's astral form into the next room. 
Strange's astral body appears to Christine again and tells her to up the voltage and hit him again, despite the fact that his heart is now beating. The shot kills the zealot and allows Strange to return it to his body and awaken. Okay, so it's like, just when you thought the fight was over in the Sanctum, it picks up again, it starts again, and it continues in the hospital with the two astral projections beating each other up in the air as they pass through walls and objects and even people. I think it's really cool. Christine patches Strange up well enough for him to return to the Sanctum. Before doing so, he explains to her where he's been all this time. So he does do some explaining. And he really does manage to explain to her everything that's happened to him in just like a couple of sentences, which I find rather amazing. Mm, this sounds like a cult. I have to go. I'm late for a cult meeting. It's not a cult. No, that's what someone in a cult would say. <laughs> Upon returning to the Sanctum, Strange discovers that Caecilius has escaped. He is met shortly thereafter by Mordo and the Ancient One, who inform him that the London Sanctum has fallen. She appoints him to become the new defender of the New York Sanctum. He protests, upset that this whole situation led to him taking a life and thus violating the Hippocratic Oath that he took as a physician. She tells him that he only became a doctor because of his ego, and that not even he can control death. Strange counters by confronting her with the knowledge that she has used the missing rituals of the Book of Cagliostro to control death herself. The Ancient One leaves without really responding to Strange's claims. Mordo lays into Strange for daring to say such things about her, and calls him a coward for lacking the fortitude to stand up and fight the zealots more aggressively, and for whining like a wounded dog when he had to kill someone. And so here we get one of the defining conflicts of the film, and perhaps one of the defining conflicts of the sequel. For all of his ego-related flaws, Strange is willing to look at all of the options and avoid a fight if at all possible. Mordo, on the other hand, can only think in terms of black and white, right and wrong, fight or die. Clearly, there's some backstory of which we're not aware. He does say, you have no idea the things I've done. But we don't really hear anything about it after he says that. Caecilius and the Zealots return to the Sanctum to try to take it again. Strange surrounds the entire area with the mirror dimension and takes Caecilius's sling ring, thinking he can't escape now, and that whatever he does won't affect the real world. Mordo points out that this is true, but also that the mirror dimension makes the zealots and their dark dimension-derived magic that much more powerful within it, and that they can still kill the two of them. Strange and Mordo begin to run, or more accurately, fly and leap, through the city, trying to escape Caecilius, and attempting to portal their way out of the mirror dimension. Caecilius uses his dark magic to continuously fold the city inside the mirror dimension upon itself and threatens to ensnare Strange and Mordo at every possible turn. This chase is like Inception on steroids. I have never seen anything like it. Nothing so, you know, I've never seen anything this trippy on film before. It's like, it's like an M.C. Escher painting come to life and gone completely mad. I've seen this movie like a zillion times now, and yet this is the first time that I've really kept a close eye on Strange, and I've tried tracking him during the entire chase, and it's it's nuts. I mean, he's continuously climbing and falling and jumping and having whatever he's running on taken out from underneath of him or having it change direction suddenly. And, I mean, I really want to see some serious behind-the-scenes footage of how they shot that because it looks really complicated and really cool. 
You know what else is complicated, and I'm just now thinking about this, is the concept of the mirror dimension. Like, it just kind of bothers me, I guess, that there's a theoretical place where anything you do doesn't matter. Like, video game style. You know, like all those movies and books where you play in the video game and it doesn't matter, except when you show up, it does matter. Because don't they say later that, like, when they're in the mirror dimension, Mordo is like, no, this is real. Well, it's real. If they kill us, they'll... But, I don't know. I think I'm just bothered by the fact that there is a dimension out there where you can do anything and have no consequences. Well, you can have consequences. There, no, there are no consequences in the real world. There are consequences presumably within the mirror dimension, which is right. something that, which is something that, yeah. Now that you mention it, I do find it kind of curious that the ancient one kind of neglects, neglects to tell Strange that. Neglects when she to first mention that, up. like, actually, no bad things can happen here. Yeah. No bad, no bad things will happen outside of the mirror dimension, but bad things can happen in here. She doesn't, she doesn't tell him that, which I do think is a little odd. Now that you mention it. I did look up that book that Stanley is reading in his cameo in this scene in the Mirror Dimension. It's The Doors of Perception, funnily enough, since we've been talking about that, by Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley, Aldous who Huxley? wrote who who wrote Have you ever read Brave New World? Did you have to read that in school? Oh, right. I didn't, but now now that you say Brave New it's, World, I do recognize that name. That yeah. it is the it is the same Aldous Huxley who wrote that. But Apparently, it's an autobiography about taking psychedelic drugs, <laughs> which I guess is a reference to Strange asking if the Ancient One had drugged him when they first met. That's right. Oh, what did you put in the tea? LSD? And he rattles off a bunch of other things. Yeah, I, I've read before that that was the book he was reading, but I always forget what it is. So thank you for looking that up again. That's <laughs> like his reaction. Like, this is hilarious. <laughs> As only Stan Lee can. Caecilius eventually catches up to Strange and takes his sling ring. He's about to kill him when the Ancient One arrives. She's sporting the same mark on her forehead that Caecilius and the Zealots do, a symbol of her usage of the Dark Dimension. Mordo is stunned at this, re- at this realization. Strange was right. Caecilius and the Zealots attack her. She is able to fight them off until Caecilius uses one of his invisible spear weapons to stab her through one of his Zealots then throw her through a portal, causing her to fall uncontrollably in the real world from a terrible height. She slams into the ground just before Strange and Mordo can catch up to her. Strange gets the Ancient One to the hospital again, where he summons Christine, Christine, again, to tend to her. But she is in bad shape, and she flatlines. Strange and the Ancient One summon their astral projections, and are thus able to communicate with each other, as time slows down around them. She tells Strange that for as many times as she's looked through time, she has never been able to see past this moment. She has always known that this is how and when she will die. Time to get thoughtful. Do you think you'd like to know how and when you'd die? Absolutely not. (laughs) I never, ever, ever want to see it coming. Well, I mean, so you have kind of thought how you want to die, because you want to die, like, in a freak accident, or... Wow, you really picked a hell of a time to to drop this one on me. I, I mean, uh, it from was a, in the from show a, notes. Yeah, it was in the show notes, but I guess I never really, I didn't really, I didn't, I wasn't expecting that follow up question. Um, I think, yeah, I, I guess I, if I knew it was coming, you know, I just be, I would be spending, you know, every waking moment for God knows how long up to that point, 
worrying about it and preparing for it. And, you know, I, I've, you know, we, you and I have talked, you know, from time to time about me, you know, aspiring to, if not always succeeding in, you know, trying to spend more time living in the moment and spend less time worrying about the future. And me just <laughs> talk about worrying about the future, being told, oh, you're going to die on this particular date at this particular time. That would just, that would just freak me out. I mean, in terms of the manner of my death, I don't know. I mean, I hope it would be quick and painless, to be perfectly honest. I mean, but at the same time, it would be nice to be able to say goodbye to everybody, but that would almost kind of imply that you would know it's coming. So, I don't know. The long and short, that, that's my simple answer. I don't know. Are you going to tell me what you think? Oh, no, I don't know either. I'd, I think I'd like to say quick and painless doing something cool, you know? Like, just sort of a freak accident, but I also wouldn't want to leave that on people. But I don't know if I want to, like, just die of old age, because I feel like dying of old age is a really long process. And I'd rather it be, like, short and sweet. Mm -hmm. Maybe not a freak accident, because I don't want to traumatize people, but just, like, one and done sort of situation. Well, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, it, you know, you know, you know, you know, I'm a big fan of the Fast and Furious franchise. And, you know, at some point within, I don't know, within a year or so of his death, Paul Walker had, he wrote or said something about, you know, he's like, like, you know, if this, you know, it's a words to the effect of if the speed, if the speed kills me, then at least I'll have, you know, died doing something I loved or whatever. And which, you know, which ended up being extraordinarily prophetic, um, even though he wasn't the one driving the car in which he was killed, um, you know, it's like, yeah, it was sort of a horrible thing and probably not a great way to go, but he was doing something he enjoyed. Wow. We get really deep at this one, aren't we? Sorry. No, it's fun. It's fun. Consequently, the ancient one tells strange that she has not seen his future, only his potential. She says he has an incredible capacity for doing good, but that he's been held back by his fear of failure. Arrogance and fear have kept him from learning the most important lesson. It's not about you. Furthermore, she tells Strange that she did not cure Jonathan Pangborn. He taught himself to channel dimensional energy directly into his body, which is how he can walk. He chose to simply take that gift and return with it to his old life rather than use it for the greater good. Strange could do the same thing, channel that same energy into his hands and go back to practicing medicine but the Ancient One says that the world would be all the lesser for it. She chose to draw power from the Dark Dimension because she realized that the rules needed to be broken sometimes for the sake of the greater good. She tells him that he and his flexibility must work together with Mordo's, admittedly inflexible, strength to stop Dormammu. Strange says that he is not ready. She responds that no one ever is, especially for death, as is the case with her but that it is death that gives life meaning. And with that, the Ancient One dies. As he scrubs out, Strange starts to reveal some of these new personal insights to Christine, in what amounts to an apology to her for being such a jerk, and tells her that he has to go, but that he now realizes she was right. There are other ways for him to save lives. I had this down as one of my all-time favorite MCU moments last year. I think it's the most beautiful scene in the film and perhaps one of the most beautiful and poignant in all of the MCU. The Ancient One imparts so much deep stuff in those few moments, and it's also in those few moments that we see Strange start to become self-aware 
this is his epiphany. He starts to realize what he was meant to do at this moment, and that he has to let go of his ego in order to do it. And even before his chat with the Ancient One, when she first arrives at the hospital, Strange picks up a scalpel and is ready to work on her himself, but then he realizes he can't because of his hands. So he yields the scalpel to that other doctor, Nick West, who, with who he was so condescending, you know, towards the beginning of the film, and he asks him to do it. And that's kind of a big deal for Strange, accepting the reality of his hands and acknowledging that Nick was the better surgeon in that moment. Kaecilius and the Zealots portal to Hong Kong as Wong and a group of sorcerers prepare to defend the sanctum there. Strange portals to Kamartage to inform Mordo that the Ancient One is dead. Mordo continues to process the knowledge that she did, in fact, draw an energy from the Dark Dimension to extend her life all while telling all of her charges that it was forbidden. He argues that her transgressions drove the Zealots to Dormammu and that Kaecilius is all her fault. The bill comes due. He's not wrong. You know, it is up to her. To, it's not up to her to decide who's worthy of act, of accessing the dark dimension. Like, obviously, she's the ancient one for a reason. But what makes her so special? Like, who put her in charge? Because, I mean, was it Dormammu? Was it somebody else? Like, who decided that she was the one who gets to decide who gets to do what? You know, so I kind of understand where he and Kaecilius both are coming from. It's almost like she doesn't think anyone else is worthy of it, maybe. Clearly, she thinks that Strange is worthy of something. It's almost like she, not that she selected him, but it's like she felt she felt compelled to teach Strange because she probably, she either for, because she foresaw or just sort of intuited that he was going to, you know, that he would have the capacity to break the rules every once in a while when necessary, just like she did. Um, not necessarily to the extent that she, he, I, she may not have been expecting him to break the rules to the extent that she did. But I think she felt, I'm, I, I can only guess that there was something in her that saw something in him that's like, okay, this guy will think outside the box and occasionally bend the rules a bit for the greater good. She knows Mordo won't do that. She knows, she knows Kaecilius, she knew, I think she knew Kaecilius would, but, you know, for all the wrong reasons. Nonetheless, Strange convinces him to go with him to Hong Kong to try and put a stop to Kaecilius before he takes the sanctum there. But when they arrive, they discover the Hong Kong sanctum has already fallen, with an opening to the Dark Dimension now open there and Dormammu on his way. Strange opens the Eye of Agamotto and uses the Green Stone to reverse time, making the destruction in Hong Kong start to reverse itself. Kaecilius and the Zealots, however, appear immune to this and continue to fight Strange and Mordo, even as the world around them repairs itself. I think this is my mag favorite magic effect, is, like, the moving time around bit. Mm -hmm. I just think it looks really cool. Like, like, stuff is moving backwards while they're moving forward? Yeah. Strange flies into the Dark Dimension and confronts Dormammu, but turns on the green stone beforehand. He tells Dormammu he has come to bargain. Dormammu kills him, but then Strange reappears, telling Dormammu he has come to bargain. Dormammu kills him yet again, but he reappears again. He has used the stone to lock him and Dormammu in an endless loop in which he dies over and over and over again, but in which Earth is safe. After killing Strange for who knows how many iterations, 
Dormammu asks what Strange wants. Strange tells him that if he leaves Earth, takes his zealots with him, and never returns, Strange will break the loop. Dormammu agrees, taking Caecilius and the zealots with him and vowing never to return. Strange and Wong are relieved, of course, but Mordo, still reeling from the Ancient One's deception, is disgusted that they had to violate natural law in order to get the desired result. He insists that there will be consequences. The bill comes due. And he walks away. Sounds like Mordo wants to be the consequence. In a refreshing change of pace from most Marvel movies, Strange defeats the bad guys with brains more than brawn. The movie's final showdown isn't a massive spectacle of epic destruction, but of guile and inventive thinking. And it's another reason why I love this movie so much. Strange and Wong return the Eye of Agamotto to Kamertage. Wong remarking that for now, it's best that Strange not be walking around with an infinity stone. Word of the Ancient One's passing will spread across the multiverse, and with no Sorcerer Supreme, Earth remains vulnerable. Strange says they will be ready to confront any mystical threats as he and Wong return to the New York Sanctum. In a mid-credits sequence, Strange agrees to help Thor and Loki locate Odin, who has apparently been lost on Earth. And finally, in a post-credits scene, Mordo visits Jonathan Pangborn and takes away the magic that allows him to walk, saying that the problem with the world is too many sorcerers. And that is our review of Doctor Strange. This is the part of the podcast where we talk about characters and actors, starting with Benedict Cumberbatch as Doctor Stephen Strange. Back in the early teens, when he was in what seemed like just about every movie un under the sun, I really, I really hated Benedict Cumberbatch. I don't think it was for any good reason other than that he was in a lot of stuff at that time, and for some reason I was always skeptical of hot actors who were in lots of projects. I used to feel the same way about James McAvoy. He was kind of the, in the kind of he was sort of in the same position in the aughts. There was a time in you know there was a time in the aughts when he seemed to, he he was seemingly in everything. Um, well, in the early teens, Cumberbatch was doing Sherlock, and he was the voice of the dragon Smaug in the Hobbit films. And then, you know, not only was he in one of the, you know, J.J. Abrams Star Trek abominations, don't get me started, <laughs> but he was playing some bastardized version of Khan. Khan, of all people. And maybe that was the last straw in my mind, him playing some third-rate version of a classic Trek villain in a third-rate Star Trek film, film by J.J. Abrams, who, as a lot of you already know, is like one of my mortal enemies. <laughs> maybe it was that... Maybe I hated the weird name and his you know, weird-looking big head with those tiny little specks for eyes. And then they announced, you know, in like 2014, that he was going to be playing Doctor Strange. And my poor little brain just kind of just kind of broke for a moment because I didn't know how to process that. You know, I've hated this guy for all these years, but he's going to be playing Doctor Strange in the MCU. So I, I finally relented and thought, well... He's going to be playing Doctor Strange in the MCU, so I better get used to the idea. And I think my wife and I started watching the final season of Sherlock, or the, excuse me, the first season of Sherlock around that time. And I was like, you know, this guy's really good. <laughs> and that, that kind of greased the wheels for me. And, um, you know, Cumberbatch owns this role. He owns the role of Stephen Strange. 
I can't imagine anyone else playing that part now. He imbues the role with a sense of brilliant unlovability that only Benedict Cumberbatch can pull off. You know, this character who's tremendously, who's a tremendously gifted jerk. And yet, you know, after the accident, you find yourself feeling empathy for him and you want him to succeed. And Benedict Cumberbatch has become, I think, one of the most engaging and masterful actors of his generation. Um, I guess that makes me a Cumberbatch stan now. <laughs> Don't get a Tumblr. Because I would not recommend the Cumberbatch fandom on Tumblr. <laughs> I imagine there are a lot of fandoms on Tumblr that are best avoided. Yeah, they're His a being little, one of them. They're a little weird, and it's purely because of Sherlock. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. But I, I, I don't really have anything extra to add. I like Cumberbatch. I don't think I've ever really had a problem with him. I think, and of course we'll talk about this later, but I think because I didn't know very much about Doctor Strange, I tied in all of the Tilda Swinton miscasting thing in with Benedict Cumberbatch being cast. Like, because I didn't know anything in my head, I was like, oh, they miscast everybody. It's sort of how my brain took it. And so I didn't really have a positive opinion of it. And I was sort of on my outward track away from Sherlock at that time. Probably had already been. And so I had negative connotations related to how Sherlock had been and all of that. And was like totally uninterested. But I do think he was good on Sherlock. Like now that I'm farther away from it and I'm a grown up who can talk about these things without acting like a child on the internet. I thought he was great in Sherlock. I thought he was great here. I liked him as Smog in The Hobbit. I think that's the only full Lord of the Rings movie I've ever seen. <laughs> have you, you didn't say, have you participated in any of those Cumberbatch Tumblr things? No, no. I watched the show and then observed from afar and thought, this is icky. <laughs> well, you know who, they were not, the, he was not the first choice. You know who was supposed to play Doctor Strange? Who, all, who came very close to getting the part, Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix, okay. was the, he was who they were eyeing, and they really, really, they went after, they charged hard for him, and they really wanted him. But, A, he didn't want to commit to a franchise and, you know, a zillion films. He wasn't up for that. And, you know, let's face it, B, he's kind of a weirdo. So he ultimately, and, I, and I'm kind of grateful that he did bow out and that opened the door for Cumberbatch. Chuatel Echiofor as Carl Mordo. Copley! This is Copley from The Old Guard. And I will say, you and the listeners are very lucky that I only shoehorn Venom into these episodes, because I would absolutely shoehorn The Old Guard into everything in my entire life if I could. I know you would. I know you would. I love that movie. I know. I know you love that movie. The Old Guard is so good. I've seen the I've seen the old oh you're telling I'm talking, the I've seen talking the old guard. I'm talking to, to the, fan. the fans if you have not seen the old guard please go see the old guard it's so good it, it it's a good movie I don't like it as much as Emily does but it is a good movie I love Chiwetel Ejiofor I remember first seeing him in this amazingly powerful but but kind of disturbing film from 2002 called Dirty Pretty Things which follows the lives of two immigrants in London he's really good at playing these characters who were just broken in very tragic ways and Mordo is no different even though we don't know his whole story we know he had some sort of dark past which 
you know, broke him and led him to Kamartaj. Chuatel Echiofor plays him with this intensity that's, I think it's just so characteristic of how he plays most of his roles. He was like that in Dirty Pretty Things. Uh, he was really like that in the, the Firefly feature film Serenity. Yeah, confession, I hated Firefly, but I did like him in that role. That was kind of the one thing about that movie I liked. And then the Netflix adaptation of the book, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, which, you know, you and I are familiar with because we sold a lot of them at the bookstore. You know, he wrote that film, starred in it, and made his directorial debut in it. You should, you and, uh, you should check it out. I recommend people go see that. And yes, he was like that in The Old Guard, which, you know, as I've said, I didn't like quite as much as Emily did, but it's a good movie. Mordo's life is so built up around order and principle, probably out of necessity, to the point where his realization of what the Ancient One has done is just, it just absolutely crushes him. And he just cannot accept what she's done. He can't process it at all. And it's like he goes unhinged at the very end of the film. Uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing what he's become in, in the multiverse of madness. Rachel McAdams as Dr. Christine Palmer. Christine is like a step above Betty Ross from Incredible Hulk. Maybe a step and a half if I'm being generous. Yeah, it, it's a shame that she was she was wasted in this movie. You know, another female aspirational cheerleader for the hero. I hope she has more to do in the next film. She's in it. Um, cause I kind of like her. I mean, she's, she's definitely, she's definitely more likable than, who was it? Liv, Liv Tyler? Liv Tyler's the actress. Yeah. Betty Ross Betty, is the character. Betty Ross. Yeah. But I remember I, I, that we interchanged her character's name and her name quite often in I, our review. I, th I think Rachel McAdams is a better actor than Liv Tyler. And I think Christine Palmer is a, a, a better defined character than Betty Ross, but She's, she's still kind of, you know, she really doesn't have enough to do in this movie, and that's kind of a shame. I've always wanted to say this. Benedict Wong as Wong. In the comics, Wong used to be not much more than, like, Strange's Asian valet or butler. And I'm really glad that the portrayal of Wong in these films is very different. He's a librarian, which of course I love, but also he's a full-fledged sorcerer who went through the same training that Strange went through. He may not be as naturally gifted as Strange, but he certainly seems like a very powerful practitioner of the mystic arts. And, you know, Wong needed to appear more relatable than the Ancient One, more affable than Mordo, and yet still convey a sense of great wisdom and be able to ground Strange at least a little bit. And I think Benedict Wong does a really good job of making Wong come across, you know, just like that in the movie. Mads Mikkelsen as Caecilius. In a period of just seven weeks, Mads Mikkelsen firmly cemented himself as a member of the Disney stable, first by appearing in this film, and then in Rogue One, a Star Wars story, the following month. I don't think Caecilius is ever going to be a biggie in the pantheon of Marvel villains. This is clearly one of those films where the hero is also his or her own worst antagonist. But Mikkelsen is still a fine actor, and he does his job by doing the best that he can with what he's given. You know, I certainly can't fault him for that. I guess here we could also talk about Dormammu, Darmouth, Dramamine, whatever his name is. <laughs> Dramamine. <laughs> um, I 
really like Mads, and I think he's good at playing morally gray and or straight up bad guys. But this set of bad guys in this movie was really boring. And I think the problem is that this is the first movie, you know, like I said before, where we're really stepping outside of the norm for an MCU movie. Like, all of the baddies before this are concrete, sort of easily understood. And even with the second Thor movie, the baddies were sort of real, tangible characters that had a weakness and you could kill them. Easily relatable. But in this movie, all of a sudden, we've got some sorcerer dude playing foot soldier for essentially God. I mean, a creature beyond space and time that can grant you eternal life out in the cosmos as long as you do X, Y, Z for him. I just think the leap from very firm, conquerable bad guy to this was too much too soon. And for me, it took away from Cassilius, who I think would have been a fun and interesting bad guy without that. Yeah, because he's, you know, he's essentially, he's Dormammu's puppet at this point. He's sort of a, you know, he's he's acting as Dormammu's proxy. So it's kind of, I think part of it is, it makes it a little bit harder to, identify him as the bad guy when it's like well is it really him or is it Dormammu pulling the strings and then we finally meet Dormammu he looks really cool he's not quite like he is in the comics and you know we only see him really for a few minutes but and even the the boss battle of this movie is a grand total of like what four minutes you mean the the Dormammu I've come to bargain bit yeah like that's supposed to be the big boss battle and it, and well, it's kind of anticlimactic, I think. Well, I don't know. I still, as I said before, I thought it was very clever how because you kind of have the boss battle. The boss battle is really in the in the sanctum because you know that that's to me that's the boss battle because it's like him versus him versus Strange versus Kaecilius and then and then Strange versus that Zealot and then Strange versus the Zealot again in the hospital. It's like one long boss fight broken up into three parts. Uh, that's why, and that's why I think the movie is so brilliant. The the big action set piece is like in the middle of the movie, and then the confrontation with Dormammu is much more, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, well, I was going to bring up WandaVision, but maybe I better not do that. Um, I guess it's just that it just doesn't. Again, I think because it's too much too soon that they didn't really know what to do with Dormammu because, like, yeah, you hear about it. But the real concrete issue is Caecilius, and so it kind of feels like the Dormammu stuff is tacked on at the end. Mm-hmm. Of like, oh yeah, we got to talk about this demon god creature from beyond space and time. All right, here you go. Here's how we'll fix it. I really like Mads, and I feel like it took away from what he, his character could have offered and what he could have done. Yeah, they may have been using Dormammu as a way to shoehorn the multiverse in or to sort of introduce us to it. So well, that's fair. Yeah. I'm well, you know, if you, I tell you, if you like Mads Mikkelsen, you know, this is one of the reasons why you need to watch Casino Royale. Cause he's the bond baddie. And that's like the first time I ever saw him actually it was the first thing I ever saw him in was Casino Royale. I like him in that a lot. Um, so you need to watch Casino Royale. We should watch it together sometime. It's pretty cool. It's like my favorite bond movie. And so we get to the elephant in the room, Tilda Swinton as the Ancient One. So, for those of you not familiar with the comics and or the circumstances around Tilda Swinton's casting, I'll lay it all out for you right here. 
In the comics, the Ancient One has always been portrayed as this Fu Manchu-like, stereotypical old Asian guy with long hair and a long beard. For those of you old enough to remember, think, you know, K. Luke in the Kung Fu TV series from the 70s, or the bad guy in Big Trouble in Little China with Kurt Russell. Either way, he's always been a he and Asian. Kevin Feige claims that they were trying to avoid that stereotype, and apparently they thought the best way to accomplish that would be to make the Ancient One A, female, and B, not Asian. In this case, white. Maybe they thought they were being clever, what with the gender swap and all, but for whatever reason, they didn't think anyone would notice that the role still got taken from an Asian person and given to a white person. Feige says that they were really concerned about the Asian dude stereotype, and this ended up being, in their minds, the only way they could accomplish that. Now, since that time, Kevin Feige has publicly acknowledged that, you know, now they know it was not a great move and that they probably could have found a way to avoid the stereotype while still keeping the role in the hands of an Asian. With all the money the MCU has, you'd think they could have hired someone to tell them that. Well, yeah, you would think Disney is one of the most powerful companies on Earth, but, you know, to their credit, I, I think I think they've done a bit better with their casting since then. Um, you know, we, we've seen it in Black Panther, Captain Marvel, and Shang-Chi, Eternals... Uh, you know, no doubt these resulted from the lessons learned, you know, to some extent while making this film. As someone who's half Asian, I'm sensitive to what amounts to the whitewashing of the role. But, you know, I also still love this film dearly for everything else that it is, you know, as I've already said. And, you know, you know, sometimes that's a little uncomfortable. You know, I just, you know... I, I, I'm, you know, I'm able to sit with that discomfort. I know not everyone can, um, and that's perfectly understandable. Um, but, you know, I, I just kind of sit with that and, you know, recognize that it's a great movie that happens to have a very troublesome flaw. Now, having said all that, I think that Tilda Swinton, you know, whether she should have played the role or not, still gives a very strong performance. You know, while not nearly as old as other so-called veteran actors who have appeared in the MCU, by virtue of simply being the oldest member of that cast, she turned 56 the day after the film came out, she inherits that mantle, and I think her gravitas is, you know, it's undeniable. She's supposed to be playing the Sorcerer Supreme, with several lifetimes of knowledge, wisdom, and power at her disposal, and I think she conveys that quite well, and with a very commanding presence on screen. Benjamin Bratt as Jonathan Pangborn. Benjamin Bratt's film career, or anything else he does for that matter, will probably never outshine his very long-lived and highly acclaimed stint on the original Law & Order TV series. He did like 95 episodes of that over the course of like 14 years. But he makes the most of his brief screen time here, and I think he plays a very convincing everyman you know, who goes to Camartage seeking a miracle. Got it and was content to return to his humble life once he did. Pangborn seems like a genuinely nice guy, and to me, that makes what Mordo does to him all the more shocking. Do we know if Pangborn is coming back? And for that matter, do we know if Mordo is coming back? Mordo is definitely coming back. Chuwata Echiofor is in it. We, you see him in the trailer. He's in the trailer. He's got, like, the long hair. Uh, we definitely see Mordo. I don't know about Pangborn. That would be kind of cool if we did see him. I would love that. 
I would love to see Pangborn, but I right now I don't know. Because if I were Pangborn, I would have figured out how to get that magic back, and then I would have been like, you know what, regular life, forget it. We're going after this guy. <laughs> yeah, that would be so cool. I mean, honestly, the thing about Mordo that bothers me the most is that he's like, there's too many sorcerers, and it's like, you're a sorcerer. Like he's he's become the very hypocrite that he's accusing right. the ancient like, one of being. Yeah. Oh, there's too many sorcerers, and it's like, okay, but you can stay. It's like you said, he wants to be the consequence. There's a lot of a lot, a lot of people that in this a, a lot, lot of, of self-importance over here. <laughs> a lot of self-importance in the sorcerer world of the MCU. It's like, oh, oh, you know, it's it. You know, I got. I almost hate to bring this up, but it's like lots of shades of you know a certain then presidential candidate saying I alone can fix it, you know, music composer, Michael Giacchino followed the exact same path to the Marvel stable as did Mads Mikkelsen. He did the score for this film and then for rogue one. Coincidentally, I think they are the two best scores of his career so far. His score for Dr. Strange is one of my favorites in the MCU, perhaps of all time. He sets us up with memorable themes for Stephen Strange himself, as well as for the entirety of the MCU's mystical realm. It's a score that conveys the sense of both intense action and magic that one would expect of a Doctor Strange comic book. As much as I'm looking forward to seeing Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, I do so knowing full well that Giacchino won't be scoring it. Fortunately, uh, composer Danny Elfman, who's taking over, has said he intends to incorporate elements of Giacchino's score into his own score, which is something he did on Age of Ultron, using parts of Alan Silvestri's original Avengers theme, as well as his score for DC's Justice League movie, using Hans Zimmer's theme for Wonder Woman, as well as John Williams' classic Superman theme. And so there you have it, folks, our review of Doctor Strange. Uh, I'm editing this one, so it might be a little while, but we will be back, I promise you. With our 22nd episode, it will be our review of Thor Ragnarok, a very beloved film in the MCU. I know a lot of it's a fan favorite. A lot of folks are going to be hopefully looking forward to us reviewing that one. I certainly am. I'm sure Emily is. I know you like that one quite a bit. I feel like we're starting to get into the realm of movies that could upend my top five. It's a very, very um, powerful string of stuff that we're moving into. We're moving into Thor Ragnarok. And then, of course, right after that, we've got Infinity War. Endgame will be coming up in that. And then we got the two Spider-Man sequels, which I know I know you're going to have some feelings about, I'm sure. Much more positive feelings than I do about Homecoming. Definitely. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. Take care of yourselves. And we will see you down the pike. Take care and have a good night. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Just in time for my phone to die. What's it at? Like It's at 2%. S- Holy shit. <laughs>